Welcome to Diabretic, a podcast where a T1D artist and a T1D expert come together to bake bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human and health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks. This week I am a T1D bad mom, baker, (laughs) (laughs) and maker of all things. All right. On this episode, we are talking Anadama bread and diabetic algorithms of care slash harm with Dr. (laughs) Laura Forlano. Uh, Fantastic conversation with her to come and uh, a whole lot of very interesting conversation about some bread that neither of us has ever had before. (laughs) All right. So the Anadama bread, I keep thinking I'm going to say it wrong. (laughs) Um, Part of why it feels like we're going to say it wrong is because it was introduced to me and then I introduced it to you as Anadamit bread. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This was actually a side conversation that I had with Dr. Carrie Rentschler from a previous episode where she mentioned that uh, she slash her partner uh, had been making this quite a bit and that they love it and that they called it Anadamit. It was really interesting, though. I mean, I, I mean, we're I we're always used to certain types of breads and our right. favorite types of breads. This one was more, for lack of better bread terms, crumbly. I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah. of a crumbly texture. Um, obviously, it was made with cornmeal, whole wheat flour, um, and like molasses. Mm-hmm. Correct. So it had a very different structure than a lot of the breads that we make, but we had it with my grandma's chili and it was Mm. actually really Mm. good dipping bread. So if you're looking for a bread to like dip in soups or, um, yeah, excellent dipping bread. Steve made some toast. (laughs) I of course made some toast. You've got to make toast to see how it is buttered. Right. Um, but so, uh, this, uh, as I mentioned, was introduced to us by, uh, Carrie Rentschler. And I went and tried to find out a little bit about this bread because I had never heard of this before. And uh, this is a apparently a New England staple. I've always heard uh, all about kind of brown bread, but I've never heard Anadama. And so this was a new thing for me. Um, and as you mentioned, there uh, there's about a fourth of the flour is cornmeal, which totally changes what eating this is like Mm -hmm. because on the one hand it's like cornbread and so that's where that like crumbliness comes from because they're super sharp uh pieces and so it cuts the gluten so it can't be as like fluffy and light and airy yeah but it still holds together like a loaf of bread so yeah and so half of the (laughs) flour is regular all-purpose the other fourth was whole wheat and so the flavor there was like wild because it's taking us all over the place, especially with the molasses in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the texture was a whole other thing because it feels like cornbread and also it feels like a sandwich loaf at the same time. <laughs> it's totally bizarre, but delicious. Um, this recipe was based off of the Anadama bread on King Arthur bread uh, website. And uh, most of the recipes I found were pretty similar. Those probably is kind of <laughs> generally representative of that. But um, one of the things that I think, because this was new for us, and I think this is uh, possibly a bread tip here in general, 
when you're baking a new bread, you honestly don't know when after it's done if like this is how it's quote unquote supposed to be. I know. Be. I was like, is this over baked or is it <laughs> supposed to be like I don't it was it was weird for me because I was like, I want this like fluffy. I'm always wanting, you know, fluffy bread. <laughs> That's um, nice. But I mean, it's good to kind of branch out from that, right? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> because, you know, that when when you cut into a loaf of bread and it's very crumbly, it's either like too dry. So there's too much flour compared to water in there or like you said, overbaked mm-hmm. to the point that it's just crumbly all over. <laughs> and that's <laughs> but it was but it was also like moist in there, which is hard to describe. Yeah. In that context. Now but you anyway. said the word moist. <laughs> moist. Stop. Listen, okay, there was a wordle a few days ago that uh, that was the, uh, now that it's passed, nobody can go back and do this. It's not a spoiler for anybody, but uh, it was very controversial day for wordle fans because that word is very, very controversial. Anyway, we're off topic. <laughs> Moving on. So uh, we'll put the recipe link in our show notes. Go and check it out. This was really an interesting and delicious bread, and I highly recommend it. All right. We have a very special guest on the show today, Dr. Laura Forlano, who's an associate professor of design and the director of the Critical Futures Lab at the Illinois Institute of Technology. She has a very deep CV with some pretty amazing uh, awards and fellowships and accolades, but also the the written work that she has published among a number of conversations surrounding the built world and how the social and people interact with that built world, both on the design side and also then uh, the experience side. And she has also written and talked about experiences with diabetes and devices. And some of that will be the focus of our conversation today. So Dr. Forlano, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So first off, we like to uh, begin with this introductory question. What is your relationship with bread? And what is your relationship with diabetes? So um, I think with bread, I think it really depends on what form it's in. So I am sort of a self-described noodle fanatic. So if that that bread is in the form of pasta, Japanese (laughs) noodles, ramen, uh, lots of different uh, kinds of noodles, then I love it. And, you know, I do eat bread occasionally, but it's definitely, I'm not as obsessed with bread as I am with the other forms of of wheat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which is... Uh, a really interesting question, honestly, uh, and and the way that you kind of open that up, because what the boundaries of bread are can be like pretty controversial for some people, right? Whether uh, something like noodles would be in that ballpark, but also even something like quick breads. Like, is that cake? Mm-hmm. Is it cake? Is it bread? Is it both? Is it neither? <laughs> right. So, right. Oh, that's great. Exactly. Yeah, but of course now, uh, since I do identify as a type 1 diabetic and a disabled mm-hmm. person, I, of course, you know, um, my relationship with bread is that I usually can only eat one piece a day. Um, right. Interesting. Um, so that we 
might be able to come back to some of that conversation because I think that uh, the the way that food and eating practices are really uh, deeply tied to uh, chronic illness. Like you said, disability, you claim that uh, kind of identity and things as well. Um, but it frames everything, right? And uh, you know, I like to say that there are, for the most part, two things that we have to do to survive, that's sleep and eat. And so if those are the things that are affected here, then that's, a, that's pretty significant. So, um, so you started talking into this a little bit, but what's your relationship with diabetes? Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about this question. Um, and for me, um, over the last 10 years, uh, since I was diagnosed in, in 2011, um, diabetes has been, of course, you know, very frustrating. Um, it's been also a form of knowledge building. Um, I started writing about uh, my experience as a type 1 diabetic using smart uh, medical devices in 2015. And so that has also allowed me to then learn more about how chronic illness, uh, disease, and disability are discussed in uh, science and technology studies literature, in particular techno-science. Yeah. And that was what allowed me to claim sort of a, a, an identity as a disabled person because I didn't really know a lot about the categories, um, you know, prior to this experience. So I would also say that um, diabetes has been, of course, a, a way of marking oneself as different, you know, from the norm in some sense, um, whether that's seen as, you know, you can, of course, frame that positively or, or negatively, um, and also as possibilities. So I think a big mm -hmm. part of CRIP justice ideas are that, you know, that it is a form of expanding human experience. And so then there's that connection with design futures in terms of, right. you know, what kinds of worlds do we want to live in? Um, that work better for us than the current kind of social structures. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And uh, uh, certainly would kind of center around some of your, I, I say center, but uh, would be a really interesting location to be investigating in the uh, Critical Futures Lab where you are uh, director and things as well. Um, one of the One of the pieces that you talked about there is really, uh, interesting in a number of ways, because you mentioned that you were diagnosed about 10 years ago, right? Um, so that means that you uh, have significant experience before and now after diagnosis. And so, uh, you know, I've uh, talked with others on the show and in other kind of research spaces, and the experience of people who have who are, for example, diagnosed as an infant or as a young child or as a teenager, right? Very different kind of relationship to what diagnosis means. Um, so uh, that's really fascinating. And I would, I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to that dynamic a little bit. What did, how does, how do you understand your diagnosis having had so much life experience prior to and now after as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit unusual. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, I think, a form of diabetes that sometimes they call type 3, mm -hmm. but it's really 
category lumped in with type one and it's an adult onset form. So I was 38 years old and I had just finished my PhD a couple of years before and I was in a number of different uh, postdoc positions. And so it came at a really inconvenient time, I would say. Certainly so. No um, because uh, just starting to, um, you know, look for faculty positions and take a faculty position at the exact same time that you're diagnosed with diabetes. Um, and in fact, I literally got my offer letter for my current job about two weeks before I was diagnosed. And the reason that I oh ended up getting diagnosed yeah, I got diagnosed actually because um, I had gotten a Fulbright grant. And yeah. as part of that, I had to just go do a routine medical examination. So I went to the doctor, had the blood work done, and he said, you're diabetic. And I, I had no symptoms whatsoever. Um, Interesting. So it was just very, very surprising um, at that time. And I was like, no, that's impossible. Um because I had grown up, you know, eating, you know, very healthy food as a child. In fact, our family was macrobiotic, which is like a very mm -hmm. um, particular set of dietary considerations. Um, I was actually not allowed to eat sugar when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't eat any sugar. And, and so my whole life, uh, you know, just I didn't know, of course, a lot about diabetes. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a definitely, you know, a huge learning curve just to figure out once you have habits as an adult, uh, eating habits or exercise habits or uh, things like that, just sort of re-adapt your entire life about yeah. that. And not only your life, but also your partner's life, of course, has to change a lot as well. So yeah. one thing I'm thinking about at the moment is how blood sugar itself becomes an, a kind of invisible actor in the relationship because every decision about, about food or even if you can go take a walk after lunch or when you're on vacation, what you can and can't do at what moment is usually mediated through that. Yeah, that's fascinating um, because I have, uh, I have that experience myself because I am a partner of someone with diabetes. And so, yeah, that's, you know, and I, I, that, the way you frame that's really fascinating to me because I have tried to explore a lot about the way that devices and treatment practices and all of these kinds of things are, is more or less actors within a relationship between people, but I haven't necessarily thought of that in terms of the actual blood glucose itself, the blood sugar as an actor in that relationship too. Um, but that's, yeah, anyway, uh, that's fascinating. And um, I am curious in, in kind of thinking through this too, I mentioned in the intro that you direct the critical futures lab uh, there at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And uh, it seems like a really kind of, fruitful and unique space to be thinking about these kinds of questions about chronic illness and treatment, oversight, things like that. So how, uh, how has your involvement with the lab and running the lab and, and uh, interacting with these really fascinating groups of people, honestly doing work there, how has that influenced the way that you are thinking about things like, like you said, blood sugar, but a number of other kind of facets of this puzzle or pieces of this puzzle. 
Yeah, I would say, um, so the agenda of the Critical Futures Lab is really to bring together critical theory from the social sciences and humanities together with design methodologies. So it's very much at that intersection or that praxis um, between theory and method. Yeah. Um, and that has been interesting because I would say for this particular project, you know, writing about my own experience from an autoethnographic perspective over the last um, five or six years since I've been writing about this topic, um, I've still mainly been, I would say, in more of a social science critique frame. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do now is to start thinking about, you know, so what can we do with this knowledge once we kind of sufficiently understand, you know, just the basic parameters about what we're dealing with? Um, how can we turn that into um, art or design engagements and that do a number of things, right? Mm -hmm. So um, moving into design futuring kinds of work. So I have um, recently developed a collaboration with an artist um, in which, you know, she's working on film and sculptures. Uh, her name is Itziar Badio and she's based in New York City. And we met through the New Museum's New Ink program. And yeah. she had read read some of my work and so now um, she has developed, you know, sort of we had been meeting uh, every month or so during the pandemic. And so now she has a sculpture that uses um, some of my data from my insulin pump to power um, sort of this the, the software that's running this uh, software uh, that's on the sculpture. So the sculpture uh, is, is sort of has subtle movements that are directed by the data for my insulin pump, and then also the data is printed onto the circuit board itself. Wow. That's, that is, that's <clears throat> fascinating. Um, so, and this is one of the things that I think is often a, a, there's a break, right? There's, there seems to be a lot of conversation about, at least now, certainly since you were publishing that piece in Catalyst a few years ago, mm -hmm. Um, that frankly was one of the first that I have seen of that kind of social critique of experiences with type one and treatments. And um, so as someone who was doing work in that area, I was really excited <laughs> to see this. And there's been a significant increase in the last couple of years of this kind of work. Um, and then on the other side, there, there seems to be a lot of focus on the uh, technological design and there is, like you said, not a, not often a lot of connect between those two things. But even in that, what is often missed in the conversation is the way that art and other kinds of design and, pro and production can be a fruitful way of understanding the human. So, you know, so as as the person from whom this data is being produced and then used in powering this thing, what's that what's that like? for you experiencing this piece of art that's a, more like kind of a product of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, actually, so um, it's interesting because the, so the data that I had transcribed in the summer of 2019 is mostly the alert and alarm data from oh. the insulin pump. And that is sort of what I've been writing the most about recently because it's, Really, um, if you talk about, if you assume, for example, that a disease or disability is sort of a 
linear progression of any kind uh, in, in terms of like, well, newer devices will come out and it'll be better and there'll be, you know, more, uh, a lot of the claims that we make in design about technology is that it'll be more seamless, it'll be less intrusive, it'll be more automated. And what I found, of course, with the most recent uh, pump that I had used for the last four years is that it, it required, in order to operate the smart insulin pump, an incredible amount of labor and participation. Yeah. Um, so the patient is not, of course, a a passive user of these technologies, but has to be very actively involved. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm most critical of is the ways in which I was woken in the middle of the night frequently um, to calibrate the pump. And so, you know, the sort of punchline that I came up with over the years has been, you know, this AI system is keeping me alive, but it's also ruining my life. And so that's why I was really focused on the alert and alarm data. And I found that after transcribing the data for about a month in 2019, I found that on some days I was getting uh, about 24 alerts or alarms per day. So that's obviously one uh, per hour. And then even some days where I had a period from like 530 in the morning to 930 in the morning where I got 19 different alerts. Mm -hmm. And course, some of these alerts are directly related to the human body. So some uh, right. of the alerts were, you know, lo- low blood sugar alerts, which yeah. are the ones that you really care about. But the rest of them were quite, uh, you know, related to the functioning of the machine, the needing to calibrate, the yeah. need to let you know the battery was getting low, the, the insulin cartridge needs to be filled, these kinds of things. So uh, so that's why I was quite interested in that particular data. And that's what we use to then code that into movements that then power the sculpture. So I think what, what's interesting is that you take something that's incredibly irritating, annoying, frustrating, yeah. and you turn that into something that, yes, I mean, can be considered um, beautiful, performative, subtle in, in different ways. And, and what the sculpture reminds me of, although we haven't, um, you know, we are going to be doing uh, an event where we talk through some of the aspects of the project, but it, it has not yet been on display. Um, but the the movement of the sculpture, which is made of concrete and rubber, it moves very subtly. And it reminds me of, of like myself lying in bed and kind of rolling over when I get these oh, wow. alerts and alarms. So I think there is something interestingly kind of symmetrical there between like my experience and how the sculpture moved. And, and so through those conversations in the studio, uh, we, you know, ITCR and I discussed like some of the interesting uh, intersections there. That's really interesting. And I, the, uh, the way you're just describing the way that, it, that you kind of envision this mimicking your subtle movements while you sleep is really interesting. And, you know, I, on a kind of then more technical level, I'm really curious then how how she was coding that movement from the numbers because that's really fascinating and that's the kind of thing that uh, uh, that's happening in the background, right? And I mean, I'm always interested in these background kinds of things. Um, uh, so in talking through all of that related to the uh, the alerts related to the sensor and the, and the pump and all these other devices that are involved in uh, identifying 
moments of crisis, kind of, either moments of crisis for your body or uh, interesting moments of crisis for the device. So you kind of have to do some kind of care work for it. It needs, it needs the insulin replace. It needs a battery, right? Um, yep. But in the process, you're talking about the way that this interrupts or uh, this thing that's saving your life is also ruining your life, right? The, the catchphrase is really excellent. Um, and I know that you, you mentioned that you have been thinking through a, a lot of conversations related to how smart devices like these, um, and these continue to get smarter, but also the use of algorithms in the context of care um, can, while they are enacting that care, can also cause harms. And these are kind of small scale harms. But I uh, am curious kind of how, how you're starting to think about that, especially as the things that are making them more user friendly are actually not friendly, <laughs> right? And then they're, right. they're actually doing some damaging things sometimes. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, well, I think the question of what kind of harm we're talking about is a very right. significant one. And I'm actually going to be participating in a workshop that's coming up on algorithmic harm. Uh, you know, and I think that will be a really useful mapping of the field. <clears throat> um, because I'm really not sure that, you know, sleep interruption and sleep deprivation for four years um, you know, I really didn't sleep through the night more than once or twice a week for four years. So it's a really it's significant impact on someone's well-being and way of yeah. life. And so I think that there's a good argument to be made that it's incredibly harmful. And of course, not all uh, patients or diabetics who use those particular devices are experiencing the same uh, harm. But so then the sure. question is, well, is it that you, your eating behaviors, your sleeping behaviors, are you some sort of outlier uh, because you're not conforming to the whatever data set the software was trained with? And so thus you're getting more problems than someone else might have gotten. Right. Um, so there's that, of course. And I think that one of the things about smart systems and AI systems that we often talk about is uh, the ways in which even the designers and programmers don't really understand what they're doing some of the time. Yeah. And that's certainly a feature of uh, one of the particular systems I used. Um, for example, the automated function um, allowed the pump to, of course, uh, dynamically adjust blood sugar with small doses of insulin. Yeah. However, the doctors, um, because that, that amount was not, um, the, the data doesn't necessarily capture exactly how much was given all, you know, 24 hours a day. It's just giving these micro doses. And, and the, you can see that on the visual display, a small dot that shows that it was giving some, but it doesn't yeah. tell you how much. Oh, so yeah. thus, what, what happens in that case, actually, the doctor's, their knowledge becomes somewhat less relevant because they know what the basal rate for the insulin is supposed to be. The amount that you get every hour, 24 hours a day is usually something that your doctor, you know, adjusts and, and fine tunes with you over time. Right. However, what happens when you move from that linear system to this dynamic system, 
the basal rate starts changing because the algorithm is trying to then adjust. Mm, and so yeah. the doctor then is no longer able to really actively intervene or help you make adjustments because they don't really know at what time of day you might have uh, needed how much. Because as far as I can tell in the data, it doesn't compute doesn't that. It only it. gives you like the daily total for that. So they could say, oh, one day, maybe the daily total was a bit more. But I don't think that according to any of the, the data that I've looked at, like when you download that data, I have not seen, you know, where does it say, well, this hour you needed this much. So what happens is the do doctors are also very unfamiliar, I think, with algorithmic systems and how they work. And yeah. so they really can't help you. So when you say, well, I'm having this problem or that problem, they, they really, they're not programmers. So they don't understand necessarily exactly what the algorithm is doing. Um, however, these are design choices, right? So there, we right. Know there are different smart systems out there and they've made different choices. And some of them are actually much more transparent. So they mm. actually use um, your existing, you know, basal rate, and then they kind of add to that if necessary, but then you're able to see exactly what they did at every right. moment of the day. And I would say that, of course, in different applications of algorithmic systems, there might be different kinds of use cases or different kinds of needs. But in yeah. this particular case, it's really important that both you, the user, um, and the doctors have a pretty clear understanding of what's going on. Otherwise, there's just no possible way to make any fine tuning because you just won't. Uh, you'll just be kind of going in circles, um, which is what what most of design, um, diabetes management does seem like going in circles anyway. But yeah. Yeah. And that, <laughs> it, it seems counterintuitive even on the surface because the entire purpose of a continuous glucose monitor being attached to something like your insulin pump or used at all is to get a to try to get away from the tiny snapshots every so often and instead get an idea of what's happening dynamically and so if it's if the pump is then not identifying what's happening dynamically then that breakdown and it's the daily even i remember that you know insulin treatment used to be a daily thing too and what a roller coaster it would send people on, right? So, mm -hmm. not having that information readily available is, uh, frankly, kind of problematic when people need this to literally live. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, as you were talking about how you've downloaded this data and then uh, looked through what what is provided by the device based on how it's programmed. The other side of that conversation that I find really interesting is that I know that uh, we have, uh, my wife, partner, Melissa, and I have used the uh, online system to download that information. And part of what is, uh, there are more barriers to that information, even still, because there was a period of time, and I think it was in, I mean, a span of years, when this particular manufacturer would only allow their software to be used on a Windows device, and it was only Windows 10, I think. And so there were these hyper-specific uh, ways that a person could even get access to the data that was being produced about their body. Um, 
And so there were, there were stretches of months when we just didn't because we didn't mm-hmm. have access and we couldn't get into, uh, have it downloaded at the doctor's office, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think interoperability is a really big uh, question here because yeah. I think there's, of course, a an incentive for companies to want to control all aspects of the system. Right. And that's why, for example, we can't just use whatever sensors we want with whatever pump we want. Right. It's not, uh, you know, it's not that different than if we look at mobile phone carriers or, or computers in terms mm-hmm. of like, what are your choices in terms of software or applications or things like that? But I do think that in this case, especially because it does um, relate to, to kind of life and death issues, that yeah. patients should have the, you know, the ability to at least access the data, choose which, you know, sort of configurations of systems they would like to put together, um, and that that there sh- that should be regulated. I think. Yeah, and you know, lest we forget this, this data is very valuable. For these, for these corporations as well. As it amasses, it becomes more and more valuable in the way they can then utilize it in future uh, kind of production. Um, whereas for people, it is very, very valuable in the very short term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so uh, the way that that value is kind of framed differently in those two contexts, I think is really yeah. important. Well, I... I even think that, I mean, so you talked about not being able to access the data, yeah. of course, could be a negative for the, the patient. But I think there's another issue, which is, um, so I was, because of the sleep deprivation, I was actually turning off my sensor at night right. for like days at a time. Yeah. And then, of course, I would get uh, reprimanded by the diabetes educator that maybe this device wasn't for me if I wasn't going to use it correctly. And so then, of course, I was depriving them of data and depriving the company of data because I was just turning it off. And so, but yet in, in different designs of different systems, some of them are, uh, you know, kind of require that you keep certain applications open at all times so that the company literally has the data whenever yeah. they want it versus right. only once every three months when you go to the doctor. So I think that's a pretty big trade-off that has not at all been discussed uh, you know, in terms of when when a patient is um, deciding which company's uh, services to use, that yeah. certainly was not highlighted that, oh, and by the way, 24 hours a day, you're going to be monitored by this app and we're going to have all of your data. Yeah. And so, wow. So then we're talking about integration of different types of devices and how those devices are connected to other things. Um, <laughs> because some of these some of these systems are not uh, wirelessly connected all the time to other devices. Um, and I know that in some cases that has been formed around, uh, frankly, lawsuits and things with other devices these companies have made that have caused significant harm to people in the context of that, like always connected Mm -hmm. to the internet kind of uplink thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, the, all of these contexts really changed that experience, though, and that's what's that's what I think is really important is for people. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't have all of this context and understanding of why these are built this way necessarily. All we have is mm-hmm. these are the couple of options that the doctor says we have, and so then we right. just kind of have to like choose and go from there. Right. You know, um, absolutely. Um, so there's a really good question about 
who are these systems designed for? Are they designed for the doctors? Are they designed for the patients? Are they designed for the health insurance kinds of incentives? And I think that's what the kind of techno science or science and technology studies approach allows you to walk through all of those different dynamics and try to question, you know, how did we get these kinds of design outcomes in the world? Like what was the social shaping of this system that exists here today? Um, and to understand yeah. that better, to understand who's being, who is being included and who's being excluded in those right. decisions that are being made. Yeah. And, and in what ways, quote unquote, they are being included there? Because I know that uh, there are some claims being made that patients are being included in the conversation in as much as their data is being included in further decision making. Um, but as we've already started talking about, there's, there is a breakdown between their actual experience and what the numbers are saying. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so there was a side of that, uh, that you, as you were just talking through there that, uh, I think points toward a a pretty large scale, uh, kind of experience among people with diabetes of different types and, uh, locations. And it has to do with these complicated questions around compliance. Um, And I think compliance in the context of design is a little bit different conversation than compliance in the context of medicine. And so as these kind of come together, it makes that even muddier and uh, fruitful for people like us who are asking these kinds of questions. Um, Mm -hmm. But for people... uh, Compliance also implies that there is non-compliance, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the context of diabetes, that does often translate into bad diabetic and good diabetic. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you kind of gestured toward that a little bit. Have you encountered that kind of framing either kind of personally or among various communities, because I know that you are variously active in online communities as well. Um, and kind of what that, how that compliance question around the, the bad diabetic, what, the, what that's doing for people. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't really heard that framing, to be honest, until you brought it up. And, but I have heard mostly from design colleagues at the Institute of Design who do a lot of work in the healthcare space. Yeah. about these ideas of like non-adherence to medical regimes. So yeah. this idea that, you know, patients, one of the reasons that patients are not achieving good outcomes is because they're just not following the doctor's orders. They they forget they take their pills. They don't pick up their prescriptions. They don't right. take it at the right time of day. They don't take the right amount. So these kinds of things I have heard, and this is the context in which uh, approaches like persuasive design or behavioral design are being introduced mm. because of this belief that we can kind of nudge people or give people a good, a set of incentives that will allow them to do, do the right thing, so to speak. And yeah. while I, I know that the designers that I work with uh, have very good intentions, um, but at the same time, I'm quite critical of those approaches because right. as, a patient and a user of these particular kinds of devices, um, there is nothing more dehumanizing than feeling like you don't have a choice. 
Right. And I think that people want to have a choice in terms of when they do things and how they do things and where they do things. And so for me, the in particular, the algorithmic systems that are very clearly based on this logic, the logic of co- constantly kind of nudging you mm-hmm. sort of, oh, please, please do an adjustment. Please calibrate. Please do this. Please do that. Well, they don't even actually say please. So you're just getting They just beep around. at you for five minutes until you come and do it. <laughs> right. And it's just a very irritating. I mean, yeah. you absolutely feel like you are in some sense, uh, don't have the choice. And you can, yes, you can dismiss the alarm, but then it will go off again and it will go off again. And, right. you know, it, and I think it really does map onto, I think it does assume, you know, a sort of normative lifestyle. So I, I did uh, in right. these forums that I've observed that people were saying that, you know, if, if you just get up early in the morning and do all these things at seven in the morning, you might have less alarms. Or if you just drink a glass of water before you go to bed, you might have less alarms. Or if you just put two pieces of tape instead of one piece of tape, you might have less yes. alarms. And actually, um, it's, it might be possible that all of these things have small impacts on the outcomes. But on the other hand, people should always be able to kind of, you know, live their life the way that they would like to live it. So certainly... For someone like me, I've never been an early riser. I am not yeah. going to be getting out of bed at 7 a.m. <laughs> yeah. to do anything. <laughs> Certainly not, you know, to calibrate the pump. Right. So, so, you know, I think that that's where, you know, maybe in the minds of doctors, they, they might think, well, gee, what's the big deal? You know, just get up and on your way to work, you know, do X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, that's not how everyone lives. And so it's the same as like the nine to five work day that yeah. you know, that doesn't work for a lot of people. Right. And, you know, we know that. Um, or uh, I think, well, another, of course, very well-known um, example in the case of diabetes was the work by Anne Marie Mole and John Law on yeah. hypoglycemia, which, which shows the way that the strict medical regimes around tight control so that, you know, you achieve healthy outcomes has the unintended, so to speak, consequence of uh, causing low blood sugar. So yeah. people are having more low blood sugar because of these strict regimes of control. Yeah. And low blood sugar makes it really difficult to go about one's daily life if they're having frequent low blood sugar, of course. Yeah. And so, and that gets to this larger kind of conversation about what is influencing and constraining people in their decisions every day not only your your kind of treatment decisions but a range of other decisions throughout the day some of those are certainly things that people can choose and negotiate and there are many things that are outside people's control we talk about control right um there are a lot of those factors that simply can't be just adjusted on a whim in that in that sense um Mm -hmm. and that's experienced disproportionately between and among Mm -hmm. people Um, and so, you know, having these conversations about, uh, you know, the constraints of design and how it's affecting people's treatments and things, um, we also like, it's necessary to keep in the frame that inequality exists in access to (laughs) besides then how people are able to enact these things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the earliest 
um, ways in which I would made aware of that, of course, is that even to get an insulin pump, you have to be considered to be someone that is responsible and someone right. that can manage well. And so you have to have, you know, you already have to be quite compliant in terms of controlling your blood sugar. Otherwise, yeah. the doctor will never um, write you a prescription in the first place. Yeah. And so it's a barrier to entry. It then can also be a barrier to the treatment itself. And then therefore like a barrier to consistent blood glucose. The, I mean, like you said, if you're experiencing severe lows or highs, it wipes out what you can do in any context, mm -hmm. right? Um, yep. So one of the one of the things from earlier in the conversation that you mentioned, I think, is really interesting. And there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of ways that this is talked about in different kind of spheres. Um, because you mentioned that you identify um, as diabetic, you also identify as disabled, and uh, I know that you have used that language in, for example, your Catalyst article when you were talking through the kind of disabled cyborg or crip cyborg identity. Um, and that, that uh, understanding of identifying as diabetic and also the, the social reframing of diabetic in terms of disability um, has been uh, really fruitful for many, and it has provided a space for people to negotiate their experience in very new and important ways. For others, there has been significant resistance to that reframing in terms of diabetes under the realm of disability. Um, and so I was, and you talk about this a little bit in your article, but I also am interested in kind of hearing from you some of your kind of experiences or, or processes involved in like why it is that you claim that identity and how you see that as a potentially productive space for rethinking these diabetic futures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so when I use the term disabled cyborg um, and um, I, I of course uh, was engaging with and drawing on Alison Kafer's work Right. Um, and I think where, what I meant by disabled cyborg, of course, I was thinking about myself and my disability, but I also meant, um, that the failures, uh, so to speak, um, or, you know, it, thinking about it in a positive way, of course, but the, the ways in which the, the human body is disabled, um, that we could make some kind of equivalent understanding of machines as also disabled or yeah. that neither humans nor machines are perfect and that right. machines are only products of human creation. So thus mm. they must of course be imperfect. And that's where, you know, yeah. trying to just push back against these narratives around technological perfection, uh, these claims mm -hmm. that, you know, of course an automated car is going to avoid accidents and, this is one of the reasons that we're going to push towards that driverless future, right? Uh, is right. Some of these claims around perfection. And so that, that's sort of what I was trying to do in, with that concept in, mm -hmm. in that particular conversation. Um, and I think it, you know, and I'm still continuing to kind of explain and elaborate, you know, what that really means. 
Um, and for me, I mean, the disabled identity, I mean, it was actually pointed out to me in a peer review that diabetes mm -hmm. is considered to be a disability from the perspective, you know, a legal perspective. And so I hadn't actually thought about it that way. And I really didn't know since I'm not a sociologist of medicine per yeah. se, I didn't really know about all of the histories there. And I found that a very productive um, way to think about it because then that offered me a little bit more, maybe even clear boundaries around the topic, because then yeah. I could look at crypt technoscience and, mm -hmm. and look at some of those contributions and say, oh, yeah, this this fits and this makes sense. And so I just I, I do think that in the space of kind of activism, that uh, the disability justice yeah. kind of their aspirations are, are quite um, emancipatory for for everyone and right. certainly a world in which we treated um, disabled people as, you know, full members of society, um, you know, would be a better one, I think, for yeah. everyone. Right. Um, so in particular, of course, disabled people are highly, highly underemployed yes. as a category. It's, of course, a very diverse category because of all the different kinds of disabilities that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it very difficult politically to say, well, what is it? Um, what does it stand for, for example? Because I, obviously, if you're, if, you know, depending on what kind of disability you have, you have a completely di different experience of the world. Right. Um, yeah, but I do think, I mean, it, it's definitely, I see it as a, as a positive. Yeah. Um, marker of identity, but I do understand that there's still a huge amount of social stigma around that. And, and there's also, there seems to be a lot of social stigma around even whether one is a, a type one or type two diabetic. Right, um, right, right. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, and I think it seems like, <clears throat> yeah, for whatever reason, it seems like a lot of these conversations do uh, at one point or another circle back to this conversation. The the way that stigma is built and also the way that stigma circulates um, because it has, has real impacts on how people understand their, their experience. Right. Um, and uh, there are, there are folks who are writing about this very conversation right now. And um, uh, Heather Walker, who uh, has also been a guest on the show has written into this, conversation in some really interesting ways um and the part of what i i uh, find especially fruitful in the context of disability is that we have a location where uh the stigma becomes really easy to see <laughs> right um and then also that means that we can see the structures more easily those things that are built um that are part of uh, establishing the how and why there um, and so, uh, in, in the context of your treatment, I know that you have kind of gestured toward the fact that you have, uh, kind of adjusted, negotiated, but also possibly changed some of the treatment to technologies and practices that you've used over the last 10 years. Um, how has that changed? And then on the back end there, is there anything that you ca that you wish was part of this uh, whole system that would make this more uh, helpful and less in of an encumbrance. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many opportunities for design um, to consider really what is, uh, you know, how the experience of diabetes is being shaped. Yeah. So if we know that these essentially diabetics are being designed based on various different aspects of health systems and medical systems and who, how you're classified and mm-hmm. all of these things of what your income level is, what technologies you can afford to adopt, where you right. are in the world, which, you know, which devices have been approved in your country, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. And so, um, I mean, one of the things I would say is that it's taken me an incredibly long time to f- actually find any community of of diabetics. And it's only mm. very recently in the last year, for example, that I have met uh, other people that work in design schools or art schools yeah. that actually are also type one diabetic and use some of the same devices and also the broader STS community where, you know, uh, Heather uh, Walker's new volume, yeah. which I know you participated in and to see that there's actually a community there of people that are trying to answer some of these same, same kinds of questions. And so I would say if anything, I would, I would have hoped to find that a lot earlier mm. because, you know, any uh, chronic illnesses and diseases and disabilities, they can be incredibly lonely yeah. spaces that no one really understands what is going on. And I actually just didn't, I didn't really know anybody almost that was diabetic until more recently. And now I've found a lot of Facebook groups and things like that, but I wouldn't say those are places where I'm necessarily finding like-minded, you know, people. It's it's great to like jump in and offer some advice or offer some uh, social support if someone's having problems with one of their devices Mm -hmm. or things like that. But I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily find it as a, necessarily like-minded so Mm. that that space of like you know scholarly and design oriented where we can both think about what's happening in these cases in a kind of an interesting way but also think about well what are the opportunities for action and i have you know in in having conversations with um especially artists and designers in the last couple of months where this vision of you know a world in which everything that uh that diabetics have to engage with would be controlled and owned and uh, designed by diabetics. Yeah. That would be an incredible vision sure. um, for uh, an alternative future in which, you know, because one of the things I've noticed in my recent change um, is that the, the new devices that I'm using are actually seem to be an incredible amount more plastic waste. Oh so, Yeah. <clears throat> the certain kinds of inserters and different kinds of things that you need to use every three days or every 10 days or, you know, all of these things are big hunks of plastic. And while a previous system, you know, it had sort of, you had one and you could use that one for four years and now you're throwing it away like every 10 days or every three days or yeah. things like that. So I think that's, it's quite um, disturbing because you think about, you know, this question of waste yeah, and waste, I think it's a theme for diabetics in a sense, because if you don't manage your uh, insulin correctly, you will start just wasting away. Like you will just lose a lot of body weight if, you, if your blood sugar is too high for too long. 
so that but then you have environmental waste and all this medical waste and so i think it's a really interesting theme to unpack but i think in terms of things that i wish you know i would have known 10 years ago or things that might be different in the future it would be that there's no reason to to for it to take 10 years to find out like kind of really ba- sometimes really basic things yeah but there just isn't enough you know there yeah there are online forums and and things like that but they're just it's not easy to necessarily find the answers to the questions that you want yeah and just have more community that could be face to face community or you know um that that would have been my main wish is that the communities that could uh, support you throughout that would be easier to find because there doesn't seem to be any incentive for the medical system to help you find them. Right. Uh, the doctors, you don't spend enough time with doctors to really, you know, uh, have that conversation. Even, of course, the the fact that the doctors, of course, they know who are the people that, you know, might share your concerns. Right. That, you know, that because of medical privacy, probably they're not allowed Can't to put you in touch with anyone. Right. That is all of that is re- is hyper dependent on how you are situated, right? How you are able to access communities in many ways is already defined by how you are positioned. And uh, the the doctors that you are seeing is related to how you're positioned and all this. And so, um, you know, there are some doctors who do group meetings with patients together in the space. And so they are learning from each other. It's fascinating, really important work, but that is not the standard, right? That's a, that's the unicorn. That's the, that's the ideal potentially. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that's super interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, this, uh, I think this conversation around the futures of diabetic communities, I think is a really, uh, fruitful space to be exploring moving forward. Dr. Falano, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation. And uh, if I can gush just a little bit, uh, your article in Catalyst has been one of the most foundational pieces related to kind of social and cultural critiques of diabetes and devices that I have engaged. And, uh, and so it has a permanent space in the literature for me in a way that I think is, uh, will continue in the future. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. I also learned a lot and, uh, thrilling to be on the podcast. Thanks so much. All right. So our discussion with Laura Forlano was really great. Um, I guess Steve's discussion. Certainly. Um, what I found, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things. I guess we'll start out with kind of talking about her diagnosis as an adult. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting to talk about, uh, especially in the context of, you know, your understanding of your diagnosis. When you're diagnosed as a kid, it's mm-hmm. very different than, you know, an infant versus an adult when you already have all these tools of understanding. Um, that doesn't mean you understand it better. <laughs> Right. You know, um, but I think that's really interesting. You know, she was starting a new career and mm-hmm. all these things are happening to you where, you know, when I was a kid diagnosed, you know, <laughs> your life is much less complicated. Not to say that the diagnosis was less complicated. Right. Um, 
but you know, you're an adult and you have to take care of yourself. And there's this, we've kind of talked a little bit on the sidelines about, you know, the responsibility of your diagnosis, Mm -hmm. um, kind of being shared with your family. Right. Um, that's a a little bit different when you're an adult and kind of self-functioning. Um, yeah. And so the way that, you know, the way that you are making sense of the diagnosis, but also then yourself, your own body, what's happening, all these mm-hmm. things are different because your like frame of reference for how you understand yourself has already changed right. so much over time. And the fact that she was just starting a new position, <laughs> uh, brand new faculty position, uh, having finished up some of her like postgraduate stuff and that moment, I've had this conversation with others who were diagnosed at almost an ex- almost identical moment to what she's talking about. And if the transition moment in your career is already jarring, then layering on a transition moment in relation to your diagnosis and your body, those things together, they amplify. It's not like adding, like it's <laughs> exponential. It's crazy. It throws things yeah. totally out of whack. And I love how she's sort of used her space and her work yeah. to sort of, you know, talk about diabetes, study it, how she talked about how she, you know, had this pump that was waking her up every night. And right. then she started taking like data on how many times she's being woken up. And I think that's so interesting because mine wakes, I mean, let's be honest, it wakes up Steve a lot. <laughs> yeah. I am a very sound sleeper and once I fall asleep, I am gone. It's like, <laughs> yes. And yeah, you know, your body so. kind of trains you to ignore things. I think for sure. Um, when, especially when someone else is waking you up all the time. So I, my body is now like, ah, oh, Steve will wake me up. You're fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, I know that experience of being woken up a lot and yeah. I loved how she said, you know, this, I can't not forward forward, you know, the device is helping save me, but it's also ruining my life. Yeah. <laughs> because it, in those moments, it does truly feel huge and For monumental sure. and the weight of waking up to calibrate this stupid machine again. Over like, why in the middle of the night? Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of feelings and emotions that go into being connected to a, vi- a device that is beeping at you all the time and telling you to do things. Yeah. and. Yeah, the you the know, way that she was talking about those nudges, right? It's made to nudge you in the direction of compliance with yes. how it's quote unquote supposed oh to be God. used. And then she was like, "But actually, no, no, I'm going to back off of that because <laughs> it's not it's not a nudge. There, it's just literally screaming at you over and over <laughs> again until you do it." <laughs> I mean, I have my pump set to the quietest possible sound that you can set it to, and yeah. it is still so loud. I think about having it set at the highest, and it's my gosh, like, yeah, it would be unfathomable to have it beeping like that. Maybe I should at night. So you, it actually wakes me up. But no, because then you'll just zone it out. And then I'll just have to listen to the super loud one myself. <sighs> but that's a good point, though, because it's on the quietest setting. And I have, you know, for example, we were visiting family during the holidays. And we're sleeping over at your brother's house. And we were down on the kind of second floor, main floor where we were sleeping, some of the kids were downstairs in the basement, somewhere upstairs. And uh, your sister-in-law, Jen, literally came down in the morning and said, I almost came down because I could hear <laughs> Melissa's pump going off. And 
I didn't want to encroach, but also like I was worried, like, does she need something? And I was like, that's very nice of you. And uh, I did also go and sorry, wake Jen. her up. I did also go and wake her up because it didn't wake her up. But, uh, but it's jarring. And like she said, when this is consistent, and like she said, for four years, she basically didn't sleep through the night. Yeah. For at least half of the week. Every week of, of her life for four years, she did not sleep through the night. And so what does that lead people to do? Well, you got you to gotta deal somehow. And so one of the things she said is she just turned her sensor off. Yeah. And stopped using it. And that totally defeats the purpose of the device in the first place. Right. And how she was you know? talking about how her doctors would then, you know, be upset with her that she was turning it off. And, you know, she's trying to live her life. So I think there's sometimes a disconnect between what your doctor is telling you to do and telling mm-hmm. you this is what's going to be the best for you and what you and your body know is best for you. Right. And those things aren't always the same. Um, not to say that one is correct or one is not. Um, it's just, you know, you know your body best. And sometimes that means turning your sensor off at night because you need to sleep through the night. You because know? if you don't, and this was something that she, she pointed to the work of uh, Anne-Marie Mole and John Law, who have written about the way that hyper control, focus on hyper control mm-hmm. actually has a detrimental effect mm-hmm. on uh, how, how steady blood sugars are. Because again, we're talking about hormones and it's super dynamic. And so if you're not sleeping, it's going to throw everything out of whack. Yep. You know, so you might have your sensor on, but it certainly isn't the, the in the way that it's actually intended to help. Yeah. Right. So but that's just it points toward this really complicated side of the conversation that she entered here and that she has been writing through and in many ways also with that art installation yeah, that she that is really collaborated great. on. Fantastic. I want to go see that. <laughs> um. That sounds amazing. Yeah, but you're in this really complicated space where you're having to make sense of what these devices are doing and why and navigate the algorithms and all of the ways these are programmed and then also adjusting it, but it doesn't give you all the info. And so, yeah, But also muddy. you just want to live your freaking life. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. I just want to like eat a sandwich and not have to think, okay, what's on the sandwich? Okay, is it does it have more butter on it? Does it is it toasted? Like, why do I want to think about it? I just want to eat a good sandwich and not yeah. have to think about what I'm bolusing. So, <laughs> like, is this too right. much bread to be eating in the day? Is this going to affect me later on? Like, it's weird. You don't really think about that you're doing that constantly every day, all the time, and like the desire to not have to do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and what's I think interesting about that and connecting this is that she was talking a lot about smart systems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, AI or uh, machine learning kind of systems that are intended to try and get us there. Mm-hmm. But also some of the ways that this information is being recorded and, and produced by the devices is not accessible yeah. to anybody who can actually then make decisions about how to adjust it. And so if those tiny little uh, adjustments to the basal rate, which is the kind of small amounts throughout the day that the insulin pump gives you, 
Um, there are auto modes mm-hmm. on a device like the Medtronic pump that automatically adjust how much it's giving throughout the day based on your trajectories and things, but it doesn't provide the data. It doesn't Which show what's crazy. changed when yeah. she downloaded all that data. And that's, that is so wild to me because like she said, how can you possibly make adjustments yeah. if you don't know what is even being injected in the first place? It's kind of interesting. We were talking about this literally last night before going to bed. And I was talking about, you know, it's great to have this sensor. And when I have the sensor on, I, you know, it's telling you all the time um, what your blood sugars are. And so then when you have it disconnected, I had to charge mine. So I didn't have it on last night. When you have it disconnected, I'm then like wanting to test every five minutes to know. And so it's kind of changing Mm -hmm. your body's need for this extra knowledge that you're having. And then thinking back to like, okay, I just tested four to five times a day and that was it. So it was much simpler in the fact of, was I stressing about it all day, especially as a kid? No. Right. You know what I mean? No, I wasn't stressing. Oh, am I going high in between this meal? I was just eating the meal and then testing later. And I think that also kind of ties back to being diagnosed as an adult and having more understanding Mm. of what it means to be consistently high or having consistent problems like that. Cause as a kid, you're just like, Oh, okay. I'm high. Let's take care of it and move on. on. That sort of thinking of, you know, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) And also the paradigms of treatment have changed dramatically in the last Mm -hmm. 25 years. And, you know, so, and that's in many ways, the only world that she has existed in as a diabetic. And so, that's how her framing was made and mm-hmm. then is consistently changing. And your framing was made in a different kind of treatment regime. Yeah, it's really and has been changing. Crazy. And so, yeah, it's really super complicated. But I, I found that conversation around kind of the algorithms mm-hmm. and uh, the way that smart systems are intended to be interacting with bodies aren't always the ways that they are. Right. And also the way that they're interacting isn't always the way that is needed. Right. Right. And um, so that gets into some of that language around harm that she was working there yeah. as well. But um, towards the end there, I think that there were a couple of things that she was talking about that I, uh, that I was really kind of taken with. Mm-hmm. One of those was waste. Yes. Right. So he's talking about envisioning a future, mm-hmm. um, futures of devices, futures for diabetes, what life is like, et cetera. Um, and one of the points she made, and we've talked about this in the past, mm-hmm. and I actually have had <laughs> a, an image of a lot of this plastic waste uh, as like my background and social media <laughs> things. And I've used it for presentations constantly because the amount of waste involved in changing your mm-hmm. sites every three days or in some cases every week or so, six days, whatever it is for your CGM, there's a lot of plastic waste, a mm-hmm. ton of this plastic waste, and it's got to go somewhere. And right. so one of those things that needs to be reckoned with is this question of what do we do with all of this waste and how do we limit mm-hmm the amount of waste that's being produced in the context here, you know? 
Right. And like, is any of this recyclable? (laughs) I I find myself thinking that all the time when I'm throwing away these like pieces. Um, And my pump, you know, has certainly less waste than some of the ones that I have had in the past where like the entire device that you connect it to your body with just goes in the trash after. Um, And that's an insane amount of waste thinking about how much every month or every, you know, couple weeks that you use or year um, is really crazy to think about. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, in sheer numbers, is it the same amount of waste as K-cups or something like that? No, obviously not. But we are talking about tens of millions of people in the U.S. potentially that these markets are trying to target right now. Mm -hmm. And so even though all of those people are not using insulin pumps and CGMs, that's what the market wants. And so if we're talking about futures, that's where our mind needs to be as we're thinking about waste, because it will be that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and and I really, I really liked the way that she built on that wordplay of waste (laughs) as well, because she was talking about the, the plastic waste, which ironically is kind of built around the fact that uh, if you're not using the devices that are creating the waste, then your body itself is itself wasting away. Wasting away. away. Yeah. That's a (laughs) really great. Yeah. That's fantastic. This is the, this is the mark of a good writer. Okay. (laughs) He is so great. (laughs) Cause we're talking wasting away while you're creating this waste. (laughs) She's talking about this thing is keeping me alive, but it's also ruining my life. You know, that's, that's just, that's just good writing. (laughs) Yeah. I really loved how she talked about disability as well and how like her evaluation of what that word means to her and as a whole um, and how the ways that we're talking about disability um, and reframing what that word kind of entails can really change the future of people with disabilities. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in that framing for myself either um, before we've kind of talked about it in Mm -hmm. the last year or two, but you know, it is important to start changing the way we are, you know, putting people in boxes yeah. <laughs> per se, you know, and treating them differently and treating even ourselves differently. You know, I don't have a disability. I don't, because why are we thinking that? Why are we saying that right. I don't have a disability? Because we are trained to think that disability is bad or yeah. disability so is sad mm-hmm. or difficult, or I don't want to be disabled. Oh, look how hard that life is. You know, it's like, why can't we celebrate our disabilities and celebrate the things? I love how she talked about, you know, machines aren't perfect. Right. Human bodies aren't perfect. And this kind of need to create perfectness in Mm -hmm. our bodies and our machines is impossible. And so (laughs) talking about that is really a great way to, I think, help more people understand that, you know, our disabilities can be celebrated because we all are different. And yeah, I think that's huge for right now. Yeah. And I think uh, the way that she came to this is also really interesting mm-hmm. because she was uh, she was saying that she did not really conceptualize that framework mm-hmm. for her writing in relation to diabetes and devices until a reviewer pointed out, hey, disability studies, critical disability studies has some frameworks that are 
really useful here. Mm -hmm. And diabetes is within many of these frames considered a disability. And she had never heard that before. And frankly, I'm not surprised because up until just a couple of years ago, it was not a very common framing. Mm -hmm. And so as I was trying to write into this space and try and make the claim for how diabetes and chronic illness need to be part of this like critical disability studies uh, discourse. Mm-hmm. We need to bring some of these experiences into these spaces and back and forth because that framing provides a lot for understanding how people are, like you said, being placed in boxes. Mm-hmm. But what's important is that we build the world around yeah. these boxes. That's what I'm saying. We're just recreating these boxes for people to fit in and it's really harmful and it's institutionalized Mm -hmm. and so all of our institutions in society are built on the kinds of assumptions that we have about people in this world and so um you know that's been the whole uh disability rights movement generally speaking has been about trying to change the frame right and you know one of the things that uh is worth noting here as well is that there have been many who have been on board and claiming that uh, as part of the way that diabetes functions for them in society, right? Claiming it as an identity, even. Mm -hmm. There are also many who have been pushing back hard against the what they refer to as the reframing of diabetes as a disability. Certainly. um, And it gets back in some ways what you're talking about around the stigma. Mm Mm-hmm. Or why that would be the case, um, but there's a, it's also I mean there are a lot of complexities in why some people are are wary of that kind of reframing. Um, sure. We all kind of know where I'm at in that camp because <laughs> I've written there and I you know this recent book that uh, was edited by Heather Walker and Bianca Frazier is doing that. It's the the entire book is framing things in those uh, in that way. So. <laughs> So this wraps up episode five of Diabetic, and thanks for being with us. We appreciate everyone who's listening and engaging with us along the way. Another thank you to Dr. Laura Forlano for being our guest on this episode, and a second thank you to Dr. Carrie Rentschler for the suggestion for the bread. <laughs> this is fantastic. Thanks for listening. Uh, please like and subscribe wherever it is that you're listening to these podcasts, and if you are feeling so inclined, leave us a review. It does help us out. And uh, we want to know what it is that you'd like to hear moving forward. So we'll see you next time. Bye.